baptized, or if you're interested in taking that step on your journey, we would love for you to fill out your communication card and let us know so we can walk alongside you on that journey. So we, we really want to hear from you, really, really want you to participate in this Ask Anything series. Um, if you don't ask the questions, I'm going to have to come up with questions. So I would just rather you ask your questions and we'll answer them and, and would love to walk alongside you um, in, in baptism if that's your next step. So those are my two announcements that I was really passionate about this morning. Let me pray for us and we're going to dive right in. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we uh, come before you this morning and God, you are our goal. God, what we desire most God, what we want to happen this morning, what we want to experience this morning, what we want to walk away with and say, what happened this morning had everything to do with you, Lord. That it was about you. It was about discovering you. It was about worshiping you. It was about not only hearing your word, but doing your word. God, it was about us coming together because you've commanded us to do so. It's about us worshiping you because you're worthy our praise. And so God, we just pause once again, and we just ask that you would show up in a very powerful way. But God, you, your scripture promises us that wherever we are, you're with us. But God, what we ask for this morning is a very special, very real presence that you're not generally with us, but you are specifically here with us, that we can hear your voice, that we can feel you, and that we can know who you are. And so God, this morning as we open up your word, we pray that you would help us to understand you. And God, that you would help us to apply your word directly to our lives, especially because this topic that we've been wrestling with is so very, very real, so very, very painful, and so very, very difficult. So Jesus, we need your help this morning. And so it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of James. We're going to be in the book of James this morning. It's a New Testament letter. Uh, so it's an epistle, uh, James, and it's on page 1011, 1011, if you're using one of the Bibles that we've handed out for you. Um, if you're using your own Bible, we'd love for you to get that out. If you're in the digital age and you want to turn on your Bible, go for it. We would just love for you to have the Word of God before you this morning. So we're going to be in the book of James because James has some stuff to say to us about this idea of suffering and, and following Jesus at the same time. And We've been in this series called Broken for a couple of weeks now, and we've really talked about these two really big principles. And, and here's what, what I've said every time, and, and I'll say it again, is that every single one of us struggles with this. Every, every single one of us has had an experience in our life where we've wondered, where is God? What is he doing? And why isn't he doing at least what we think he could be doing? Or maybe what he should be doing? Or at least what we think he can do? Why isn't he showing up the way that we think he should? And how come he's not working? And how come it seems like maybe, maybe he's far away? Or maybe it seems like he's really, really late. And out of John chapter 11, which is the story of Lazarus, Jesus' friend dying, we, we pulled out these two really big principles. And, and now the thing is, is I'm with you on this. Like these aren't principles that I treasure. I don't wake up in the morning and go, God, please let me experience these in my life today. Uh, in fact, these are two principles that, that really my, my idea on these are if, if Jesus says them, then I'm just with him because I believe in him. Like if he can do everything that he's done in scripture, if he can perform miracles, if he can cause lame people to walk, blind people to see, if, if he's the guy that said he's the son of God and predicted that he would die a certain way and all that came true and then he said even when he was dead certain things were going to happen and that he would come back on the third day if all that happened the way it happened then I'm just 
with him, even when he says things that I don't really understand, because I just believe he is who he said he is. And so it's through that context or through that lens that I see all of Scripture. And in John chapter 11, we kind of get these two big principles. The first one is this. We call it the paradox of pain. It says, because Christ loves us, there will be times that we experience pain, suffering, and loss so that we may see his glory. That there's actually seasons in our life that will be difficult, seasons that we experience pain, suffering, loss. And although we see that as a breakdown, somehow God hasn't showed up, somehow our prayers hasn't been answered, somehow there's some sort of miscommunication or breakdown in the cosmic world, what Jesus says is that sometimes those things happen for our good so that we could see his glory. And that there's sometimes in your life and sometimes in my life that we experience things that we would rather not experience. But Jesus says that it's actually so that we could see his glory and believe in him. The other one we, we picked up was what we called the principle of waiting. That there's times in your life and my life where we wait upon God. In fact, I think there's all, ti- all kinds of times in our lives where we wait upon God. And what we said is waiting is not an interruption of God's plan. Rather, it's part of his plan. That sometimes in your life and my life, when we feel like we're waiting on God, that that's not some sort of interruption of his plan, it's not some sort of interruption of his power, it's not some sort of interruption of his will, but it's actually his will for us. And we discover these great scriptures that say things like, our strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. And now let me tell you kind of what's going on in my house right now. I have two kids, one that just turned five, and one who is two will be three very soon. And over the course of the weekend, we did all kinds of partying, not because it's St. Patrick's Day, but because my oldest son just turned five, and so we had all kinds of family celebrations. And like last night, one of them started coughing, the other one started coughing, and there was just like cough attacks happening in my home. And so there was very little sleep, and so what happened was, is about, I don't know, midnight or something like that, it was late, we're trying to give our kids cough medicine. Now, have you ever tried, like, kids' cough medicine? It's horrible. Like, they pay people to put something on a label that says, new, wonderful berry flavor. And, and then you, like, try it. If you ever try it, you should try it sometime. If you have a kid that's sick, just take a sip before they take it. Like, it's not wonderful. And, like, if you went to the store and bought those berries, you would take them back. You would say there's something wrong with these berries. Now, here's, here's the thing. I am trying to convince my children who know. Like, all we had left was, like, the purple kind, and I don't know, the purple kind must be the worst, because Shane says, it's not the purple kind, is it? And I figure it's dark, so I'm like, uh-uh. Like, <laughs> it's like, hey, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there, did it really make a noise? I'm thinking, there's no lights on, so is it really purple? I mean, I don't know. So, and so he takes a little sip, and he goes, it's the purple kind, you know, and, and like, Nolan, his brother, is, like, here, and he's like, I'm not going to take the purple kind, and, like, like listen, listen, listen. You've got to take the cough medicine. It's going to help you. It's going to be beneficial for you. I know that it doesn't feel like it right now. But trust me on this. We've got to get this into your system so it can do its thing. And here, here's the thing. That's what I'm going to do this morning. Okay? I'm offering you God's word. I'm offering you purple cough medicine. And all of you are going to go, no, 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 no. There's no way this is good. There's no way this is help. I don't even believe this. And this is what I'm telling you. If you would just get this into your system. Like, if you would just grab onto this and get through the, the, the nasty taste of it and the bitterness of it right in the beginning, if you would just hold on to this thing, it would actually be for your good. And this is what I know walking in, into this this morning. 
is you trust me as much as my kids trust me offering them cough medicine. You are as willing to grab onto this one as my kids are like, yeah, Dad, this is really going to work out for our good sometime. Because this is where we're going in Scripture this morning. I'm just going to give you the whole message in the first three minutes in case you leave. Here's the deal. When you and I experience pain, suffering, and loss, it is actually for God's glory. And when we wait on him, it's not an interruption, but it's actually part of his plan. And when we experience both of these, here it comes. When we experience both of these, it's actually for your good and for my good. See, somehow when you and I experience hardship, when we experience pain, when we experience toil, when we experience that gut-wrenching heartbreak, when we experience those moments where we're going, where God and why God and if you were here and why didn't you, that what Scripture actually says is that's for your good and it's for my good. Now, here's the thing, because I'm with you. Like, if it weren't for Scripture, I wouldn't believe it. Like, if it wasn't in the Word of God, I would be like you and go, hey, let's just go grab some breakfast together and talk about something else. But here's what I think. I think this is actually for your good and for my good. I'm just trusting Jesus on this one. In fact, what I want to go to is the book of James this morning. For me, other than Jesus, James is one of the most compelling people in Scripture for me. Because James is actually the half-brother of Jesus. And so what that means is, is, you know, James was born of Mary and Joseph, but Jesus was born of Mary, but Joseph had nothing to do with it because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he can only be his half-brother. Now this is why James is so compelling. is because what would it take for your siblings to truly believe that you were God and go to their grave for it? Like people show up and say, hey, we're going to kill you. You're like, listen, 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 listen. I'm his brother, I'm his sister, he's not really God, it was a lie, like here's the thing, but what would it take, what would it take for your siblings to truly believe to the point that they'd be willing to die for it, that you were God? Now if any of you have half-brothers and sisters or step-brothers and sisters, it's even more difficult, what would it take for them to profess that you are God? And see what scripture tells us is that James didn't really believe early in Jesus' ministry that, it was, that he was actually God, that he thought, man, I know, like, we used to eat Lucky Charms together, like, I was there, I was there on his birthday when he got toys and didn't really want to share, and like, I mean, we, we just saw all that go down, and yet after the resurrection, we see James believes that truly, my brother must be who mom says he is, and my brother must be who he says he is, and see, we all have that, right, we all have a sibling that our parents says, like, couldn't you be more like him? And you all have a sibling that told you you were adopted, that they're better than you. So this isn't an abnormal experience. The problem is, is Jesus was right. And James goes, listen, I, I believe that he really is the son of God. Now, here's what's interesting about James. James goes from a non-believer to a believer in his brother. He believes, hey, Jesus is the son of God. He's the Messiah. He died for our sins. He rose again on the third day. And he actually becomes a leader in the church. In fact, he becomes one of the great leaders in the church of Jerusalem. And we see scriptures like Acts 15, Acts 21 that show the church looks to him for a lot of insight, a lot of instruction, a lot of guidance. Now, now here's to whom James is writing. He, he's going to start this way. And what he, what he says is he's going to write this letter to Jewish Christians who are under persecution. Okay, So in Acts, Stephen, who's one of the leaders in the church, gets stoned and killed. Okay. 
By stoned, I mean they threw rocks at him, not went to Colorado and partook in something that's legal there, okay? So he's stoned and killed, and this is what the church does. The church decides, hey, we got to get out of here. Like, they're after us. They're going to kill us. If they discover where we are, if they discover where we're meeting, if they discover where we work, and so we got to get out of here, and we have, to, we have to leave because our lives are aligned. So the church scatters. And so for the first time a- after the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, then the day of Pentecost, all this happens in Jerusalem. The church is saturated in Jerusalem. And somebody has the idea, hey, we got to get out of here. There's too many of us here. They're going to kill us. And the church scatters. Now, here's what happens. When the church scatters, this is a new belief system. This is a new religion that, hey, we're Christians, that we believe Jesus is the Son of God. And by the way, you guys murdered him, and he rose again. And there was all kinds of persecution. This wasn't met very well. There weren't uh, people who were real excited about this. And so the church is persecuted. Hard to find a job if you're a Christian. Hard to find a place to live if you're a Christian. Hard to make friends if you're a Christian. And this this is how James opens up the book. This is what he says, James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in dispersion. He says, listen, I'm with you. I love you. I know what's going on. I know things are difficult. I know that things aren't the way they used to be. I I realize that some of you have died. I realize that some of you are still mourning the loss of Stephen. I realize you're living in foreign lands. I, I know what's happening. I love you. This letter is to you. So James is saying, listen, I've got some stuff that I want to address to you now that you're dispersed. And now that you're, you're going into places that are new to you, now that you're struggling, now that, now that you're in the middle of these trials that you've never faced before. Now here's what I love about James. I'm so thankful that we get to experience James as a letter and not as a person. Because I don't know how popular James was. Okay? In just the book of James, there's 108 verses. Okay, 108 verses. 58 commands in James, which means about every two verses he's given a new command, okay? So he's, 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 a, he's the boss. I mean, he's kind of going, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. I want you to stop doing this. I definitely don't want you to do this, but here's what you need to do. So about every two sentences, he's given a new command. Now, there's two major themes in the book of James. The first one is this, the relationship between faith and works. So what he's going to talk about all throughout the book of James is what does it mean to have faith, to put your trust and your confidence in Jesus? How does that belief, that inward belief, how does that take outward action? And this is where you get the classic verse, it's James that wrote it, faith without works is dead. That hey, it's not by works that we're saved, it's not that we try to be good people to get saved, but if we are saved, our faith inward has outward expressions. That what we believe affects what we say, how we go, where we go, what we do, what we don't do, that our faith is living, our faith is active, and what we believe will affect all areas of our lives. And so within that context of faith and works, he gives 58 commands and 108 verses. Now the second major theme in the book of James is this, to explore the impact of our faith on our life in this world. So not just what do I do, but how do I even live in this world? How do I exist in a place that is a temporary home because I'm not meant for this world? I'm actually an alien in this world, but I'm looking to heaven, my eternal home. So he begins to explore that idea of faith and works and faith and living. And what James chapter 1 is all about is trials and temptations. 
Like, James doesn't pull any punches. He, he doesn't start with, hey, I'm so sorry. Let me give you a hug. He says, listen, to my brothers who are suffering, and he's going to start with a command right from the beginning, and he's going to talk to us about how do we suffer? How do we experience trials? How do we face temptation? And what he says is this. I'm going to tell you what he says in the beginning. He says, trials and temptations are inevitable, but God intends to use them and deepen our faith in him. The trials and temptations are inevitable, and God intends to use both to deepen our faith in him. Now, this isn't what he's going to say. James isn't going to say, hey, be really excited when you face trials. Like, he's not going to say, hey, when, when you have a hard day, be happy. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, he gives us a completely different context. And he says, when you and I see God as sovereign in our lives, if he's the Lord of lords, if he's the king of kings, if he rules and if he reigns, then our faith in him will affect how we go through painful situations. Our faith in him will influence how we wait upon him. Our faith in him will actually cause us to trust him, even when it seems like he's late. And he reminds us that even though you will face trials and I will face trials and you will face temptations and I will face temptations, that God intends to use them to deepen our faith. Now, real quick, I've got to warn you of some heresy, okay? And by heresy, I mean false teaching or, or false beliefs, okay? Whenever you talk about trials, hardships, someone in the room has this thought, but don't we have the ability to name it and claim it in Jesus' name? Like, isn't this idea where I can go, Lord, I need a job, and in your name I just claim that job in Jesus' name, and it's a, a, a done deal? And I go, you don't see that in Scripture. In fact, James is going to create this paradox for us that sometimes what we're going through is his will, and so there's nothing else to claim outside his name because we're already in his will. Like nowhere in the New Testament are you and I promised the idea that we can just say, God, give me money in Jesus' name, and pff, money appears. Like nowhere in the New Testament say, hey, God, just restore my health to 100%, give me health, and it appears. Like nowhere does the Scripture teach that Jesus gives us the ability just to name it and claim it in his name. And so that's kind of one hand on the spectrum. Now the other hand on the spectrum is sometimes people would believe if you're going through a time of suffering, toil, and loss, somehow God no longer loves you. Somehow you've upset him and he's punishing you because you've done something wrong. Nowhere in Scripture does it teach that either. Scripture says that you and I can make really bad decisions and we face the consequences for that, those decisions, but that doesn't mean God has stopped loving us or that he's no longer involved in our lives. And we have to get away with those thoughts. We have to just shove those thoughts off because they're false teaching. They're not real. You see no grounds in those in Scripture. In fact, you see a guy like Job, whom God says is upright, one of the most upright people, and yet he goes through the most horrible times. And that's what Job's friends tell him, right? You must have made God angry. And Job has this thing with God and says, is this because you're angry with me? And God says, no, it's because I'm God. And so we have to get away with those teachings. And, and here's, here's, here's what I'm telling you. Just like my boys needed that cough syrup, you and I need this. You and I will need to grab onto this at some point in our lives. Maybe it's today. Uh, maybe it'll be tomorrow. If you're a young person in the room, here's the thing. 
I wish I would have been taught this years ago. Because I think there's kind of this idea that most of us have that if we become saved, everything will go our way. Like it'll kind of be all rainbows and daisies and Jesus would prevent us from going through any type of hardship or toil that we would never have bad days and it would definitely never be within God's will for us to have hardship. And because maybe we've been taught that or maybe because we believe that, then what happens is, is we have hardship and trials and things don't go our ways and all of a sudden we go, maybe I'm doing something wrong or maybe God's no longer real or maybe he doesn't have the power I, I thought he did when I was younger. And see, the reason we have those thoughts is because no one opened this Bible and told us, as a Christian, is one whom God has redeemed and saved and loved and called his own, you will face trials. And sometimes it's his will so that you can see his glory. And sometimes you will wait because it's part of his plan. And all of that is for your good. And this is what James says in James chapter 1, verse 2, is he's talking to people who have no idea why what's happening to them is to happen to them. They believe Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. They've firsthand witnessed him raised from the grave. They, they know his power, and this is what he says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He goes, listen, I want you to see something that you don't see. Count it joy when you face trials of various kinds. Now, now this, is, this is what he says. He says, you will face trials. He doesn't say if or maybe or if you're one of the unlucky ones. He says, listen, count it joy, my brothers, when. It will happen. It's going to happen or it is happening. Now, here's what we have to see. For James, this is a command, okay? We're in verse 2. Here's the first command. Count it joy. You go, but I don't want to count it joy. He goes, I don't care. Count it joy. This is a command. As you're going through difficult things, count it a joy. See it as a joy. Attribute it as a joy. Why does he have to command it that? Because we don't ever feel that way. Like we never go through hardship and we're like, yes, God is at work, brothers, in my life. Because things are going horrible. None of us feel that way. And James goes, listen, count it is a joy. Now, 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 here's the thing, because I love you, I have to tell you this. Why James is telling us this is true, he is not telling us that this is the first thing we should say to someone who is suffering. Like, don't be that guy or don't be that girl that goes to a funeral and walks up to the person mourning and goes, you know what James says for you? Count it joy. Count it as a joy. Like, this shouldn't be a funeral. This should be a party because you're suffering. I mean, somebody loses their job, you know, Count it joy. Let me take you out for a burger and buy you a cake. Like, listen, this is exciting. It's not what James is saying. He's saying nobody feels this way, but the reality is, is that God is going to do different things through different situations in these times. In fact, James isn't even saying to be happy. He's just saying count it is a joy. Because here's the deal. Trials are not joyful in and of themselves. There's no joy in a trial. But this is where James is going to lead us to kind of this first big thought, this first big perspective. Is what I think James is saying is that trials can be counted as a joy when they are under the authority of a loving, sovereign God who is accomplishing his purposes through them. 
that trials can be counted as a joy when they are under the authority of a loving, sovereign God who is accomplishing his purposes through them. See, the joy isn't about the trial. The joy is about there's a God who is sovereign. It means he's in control and that he is actually in love with you. He loves you. And that through this situation, through this turmoil, through this trial, that he would actually be accomplishing something in your life. And I think then as James goes on, he reveals to us a few things that happen. That if we would stay faithful and if we would stay steadfast and if we'd allow God to do his work in our lives, that these things would be accomplished as we endure, as we go through, as we're seasoned by trials in our lives. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, James right off the bat says, one of the things that happens in your life and my life when we go through trials is we learn to grow in the likeness of God. That this is actually about maturity. That this is about you and I being seasoned. That this is about you and I growing. That if we would go through this hard time, that we would actually be tested. And as we're tested, it would produce steadfastness. And as that takes place, that you and I would grow, that we would become perfect, and that we would become complete, that we would no longer lack anything. This is kind of an exquisite way that, that James says that when you and I experience trials, it causes us to grow up in our faith. It causes us to trust Jesus more. It causes us to dig more into our faith and in the life of Christ. In fact, what he really says is that the goal for your life and my life is to know God and to love him. And that as we grow, we grow in our faith. That we grow in our knowledge of him. We grow in our experience of him. That we grow in our confidence of him. That really the goal of your life and my life is not to stay the way we are, but it's to grow up in the faith, to grow up in who we believe Jesus to be, to grow up in what we think he can do, to grow up in our trust of him. And, and, and here's, here's the thing. This is not always an easy thing. In fact, I think if you were to really take some time and evaluate your life, I think you would find that you had some pivotal circumstances that took place in your life and at the end of that pivotal circumstance, you went, you know what? I see Jesus clear. In fact, I believe that I can trust him more. In fact, for me personally, I became saved as a high school student. And so when I was in high school, this is kind of what my faith was. I, I believed that Jesus was real. I believed that God said he, he was who he said he was in Scripture. I believed all that. I believed that I was saved. I believed I wasn't going to hell, although I was pretty sure that I deserved hell. And then I had faith for this, like, God, I want to live a pretty good life. I want to make pretty good grades, and I'm kind of dating this girl, and hopefully that would all go well, and I would really like a car. And so that was the realm of my faith, right? I mean, that's what, that's what I, I trusted God for was those things. And then as I got older, what I needed God for and what I trusted him for grew bigger. Like, hey, God, now I just don't want to kind of get good grades. Like, there's this thing called college, and I would kind of like to get in because my parents will kill me if I don't get in. So I need to get better grades and I need to make wise choices. And now I have some decisions to make. And God, can I trust you with those? Can I really believe that you would lead me? And can I believe that you would really guide me? And this doesn't always feel really comfortable, but I trust that this is really what's best for my life. 
And then you continue to grow up, right? And the realm gets a little bit bigger. And, and now all of a sudden you're thinking about getting married and you go, God, I know that I trust you for me, but I, do you, I trust you for him or for her? Do I trust you for us? Do I believe that you would give me a job that would employ me and provide for me? God, how would we find this thing called insurance that would cover us? God, do I trust you for us? Then at some point you have kids and you go, do I, God, do I trust you with this? Do I trust you with us? Do I trust you with we? And you have pivotal circumstances and decisions you have to make. And each time you go, God, do I think you're big enough? And do I really trust you? And all of a sudden there's an employment change. And all of a sudden there's some stuff in the family. And every single one of us at some point answers that question, that same question that Jesus asks Martha in John 11. Do you believe? And see, if I had the same faith I had in high school, God, I'd kind of like a car. I'd kind of like to go out Friday night, and I'd kind of like good grades. Can I trust you for that? Can I follow you for that? Then I'd be limited in my growth. I'd be limited in where I am. But every time you and I take steps on the journey, what I think James is saying is as we suffer and as we experience things, when things don't go the way we think they're supposed to go, and when there's hardship and when there's serious pain and serious loss, what happens is our faith increases. We go, God, I, I trusted you for this, and I trust you now for this, and because I've gone through this stuff, because of that hard time, because of that valley season, because I walked in the valley of the shadow of death, I actually believe in you more because I've seen some things and I've been some places. And it didn't really go the way I wanted to go, but I don't think I would have survived if it wasn't for you. See, the reality is every single one of us one day will have to stand before God. And that can either be a beautiful experience or a terrifying experience. That one day we'll stand before a holy, holy, holy God and he will judge us. And he can judge us based on what Christ has done for us or he can judge us based on what we've done for ourselves. See, every day that you live and every day that I live is preparation for the day that you and I will stand before a holy, holy God and have to give an account for our lives. This is what James says. He goes, listen, as you get ready for that day, as you get one breath closer, as your heart beats one last time, as you prepare to stand before a holy, holy, holy God, understand this, the things that you're going through, if you would stay faithful, if you would allow God to work in your life, that it's a testing of your faith. Do you believe? And as you hold on to that faith and as you trust him, it actually grows steadfastness. And steadfastness, when it has its full effect, it grows you up that you believe in him more and you trust him more and you surrender more of yourself to him. See, think of it this way. Think of a trial that you're going through right now, a difficulty that you're experiencing right now. Now ask yourself this question. What's your goal in that situation? What's that goal? What's your goal? Whatever that hardship is, what's your goal? Now here's what I think James is saying. 
Because for many of us, whatever you thought of, hey, my marriage is a little rough, and so what I'd really like is a better marriage, or my finances are a little bit rough, so I'd like better finances, or I got a bad diagnosis from the doctor, or somebody know I got a, a diagnosis, so what I want is healing. Maybe I've got some stuff going on in my employment, and what I really want is for that to get resolved, right? And I don't think anything of those are bad things. See, what I think James reveals to us is those are just all the wrong goals in our situation. That really the goal should be, in the midst of any trial or any circumstance, the goal should be, I desire God. See, even though I got a bad diagnosis, you know what I desire is for God to show up, for him to reveal himself, for me to see his glory so I can trust in him. And even though I'm maybe right now I have a bad marriage, you know what I need? I need God to show up. And I need him to reveal his glory so that we can believe in him and trust in him. And maybe you just got some sort of bad employment situation notice, and you go, you know what, you need more than a new job or a better job or reconciliation in that job? You need God to show up so he can reveal you his glory so you can believe in him and trust him and put your faith in him. You see, what we need more than results, what we need more than circumstances for the holy, holy, holy God, Lord God Almighty to show up in our lives. So we go, hey, I have no control over this, and I don't know how any of this will happen, but here's the thing, I believe that you're God. So more than anything, I'm going to trust in you, and I'm going to believe in you, and I'm going to put your, my faith in you. And this is what happens then. We begin to experience joy not because of the trials. but We experience joy because God himself shows up, and we go, listen, this is about my relationship with you. This is about me and you, and this is what I believe in you. This is about me putting my confidence in you. This is about me putting my trust in you. And, and I don't find any joy laterally in this situation. I don't find any joy in the circumstance. I don't find any joy here. But where I find my joy is that you and I are going to do some business together. And I'm going to walk closer with you, and I'm going to put my faith in you, and I'm going to put some stuff on you. But I believe that you can hold that weight because that's what your glory is all about anyway. See, what James says is that you and I would begin to experience him in, in a way we've never experienced him before. But it's actually in the midst of those trials that we have a deeper knowledge of God. And by knowledge, I mean we know more about him. Because let's just be honest, right? Let's just be honest. It's church so we can tell the truth. Isn't it true that when we go through painful circumstances, we tend to read our Bible more than in the other moments of life, right? All of a sudden, when the war sirens turn on, we go, hey, we've got to dust off the Bible, and I, I need some scriptures for my life in that. And he's going, listen, I understand that you're in some trials. I understand that you're on your knees more praying now than you were yesterday. And you know why? Because God wants to reveal to you his glory. And so it's about a knowledge of him, but then it's about an experience of him. That you and I could actually be believers with stories. That we could be like in the Old Testament, they go, hey, you know who we believe in? We believe in the God of Abraham and Isaac. We believe in that God. But we believe, we believe in the God that led us through the sea because he parted the waters and he led us by a pillar of fire and by a pillar of smoke. And we believe in the God that delivered us. And we believe in the God that led us out of Babylon. And we believe in the God that even when Abraham took up his son, he provided a ram. And you go, why? Because it all required faith. You see, the goal of your life and my life is one day we could stand before a holy, holy, holy God and say, I trusted you, I trusted you, I trusted you, I trusted you, and I gave my life and I trusted you. And so this is all about you. And so as you judge my life, here's the thing, you don't judge me based on my worth, you, but you judge me based on Jesus because he's where I put my faith. He's where I put my trust. It's him that I surrender to. I love this. Towards the end of his life, the British broadcaster and Christian apologeticist Malcolm Mudgery explained, contrary to what might be expected, 
I look back on experiences that I had at the time that seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything that I learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my experience has been through affliction and not through happiness. That there's something about those difficult moments. There's something about those trials that God does something in us. And if we would allow him to work, we would actually become more like him. And see, what I love about this is this isn't even just true for your life and my life. This is true for Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which cleans so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the, what's that word, joy that was set before him endured the, what's that word, cross. You really think the author of Hebrews is saying when Jesus looked at the cross, he was like, woohoo! No. That's absolutely not what he's saying. But he said Jesus' goal wasn't the cross. Jesus' joy wasn't the suffering. Jesus' joy was even though he knew what he was about to do, what he really desired was God, his Father, to accomplish his will, to accomplish his purposes. Because watch this. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But even Jesus had this mentality, hey, I'm going to go to the cross, and here's the thing. I'm not really excited about this, but here's what I'm excited about. I'm excited about this. Like, I go through that, but this is what I get. I get my Father, and I accomplish his will and his purposes would be done. And I think that's true for you and me when we go through difficulties. Even though we don't have to be excited about this, even though this trial, even though this thing isn't where we find our joy, it's in God that we find his joy. Because as we experience these things, there's actually stuff that God's doing in us, that he wants to accomplish in us. In fact, James goes on to say this. He says, not only do we become more like God, not only do we grow up in our faith, he goes on to say this. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without approach. And it will be given him. Like This is, this is awesome. Like, not only do we get to become more like God as we go through trials, this is what James says. He says we learn to trust in God's wisdom. So we, we begin to get his mindset. We begin to understand how he thinks. And, and not only that, not only that, he takes it to the next level. He says, not only does God reveal to us his wisdom, but if we ask God for his wisdom, he'll give it to us. That we can go before God and say, you who know all things, you who, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, as high as the stars and the sun are above the earth. He goes, listen, give me some of that knowledge. Give me some of that wisdom. Help me to understand the way you think and the way you do the way you do things. He goes, I want a piece of that. And James says, when you go through difficulties, you begin to think differently. And when you go through trials, you begin to ask God, hey, I, I want your thoughts and not my thoughts. In fact, I saw this really great quote this week. It says, the things that hurt you the deepest are also the things that can teach you the most. But it's in those times of uncertainty, it's in those times of trial where we go, maybe my way of thinking isn't good enough. 
In fact, when you and I make decisions, we usually narrow it down to three things, knowledge, perspective, and experience, right? Whenever you've made a bad decision, you've thought, if I just would have known what I know now, I wouldn't have done what I've done, right? If I had more knowledge, I wouldn't have done this. Or you go, man, if I would have seen this thing differently than I saw it at the time, if I had a different perspective, if I could have seen this thing a different way, then I wouldn't have made this decision, or, or you would have said something like, man, if I, would have do- if I could have done this differently, if I could have maybe talked to somebody who had been here before, if I had somebody who had more experience than I had, then maybe I'd make a different decision. And this is what James says. He says, maybe if you don't understand what you're going through right now, maybe what you need is more wisdom, and that wisdom isn't found among men, that wisdom is found among God. He says, maybe you need a different perspective, maybe it's a heavenly perspective. And maybe you need more knowledge, and maybe that's the knowledge of God and experience with God. In fact, maybe the experience you need is an experience with the eternal God. So James says that we become more like God. He says we can actually gain his wisdom. Then he goes on to say that in the midst of trial and temptation, that we actually begin to experience a trust or a faith in God's resources. Let's skip down to James chapter 1, verse 9. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. In the rich is humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. Now, this is not what James is saying. James is not saying that it is a sin to have money, He is not saying that it's a sin to be wealthy. That's not what he's saying, but this is what he is saying. He's saying the person who's lowly, the person who is poor, relies and trusts on God's resources. He says the person who is rich has the potential to think that they can live independently of God. And so when they reach a trial or a hardship, they go, I can just keep throwing money at this thing until it goes away. But the person who's out of resources can go, I don't have any resources. I need more. I need different resources. God, I need to trust in you in this circumstance. And what James says is maybe one of the things we learn in the middle of difficult difficult trials and circumstances is that maybe we shouldn't lean on our own resources, our own finances, our own strength, but maybe what we need is more of God's. Now, this one is interesting. He kind of shifts real quickly then from finances to reward. Watch this. He's talking about the rich person. It's actually humiliation. The lowly person, exaltation. And then he says, blessed, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So he's still wrapping this whole thing up. He's still saying, hey, to all of you who are suffering, to all of you who are struggling, to all you who are going through some things, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now, now here's the thing. Sometimes when we read scripture and we hear about these crowns, our imagination goes a little bit wild. And so we hear about the crown of life or the crown of blessing, and we start to think of how does God make a crown out of life and what does that look like? And, And this is what James is saying. God will give you a crown, and the crown itself is life. And what he's saying is eternal life. He's going, listen, even though you suffer today, there's a reward. There's a blessing that one day you'll be with God in eternity, forever, and what you've gone through now will season you for that moment that you stand before him and his gift to you. 
because you've been saved by him and you've surrendered to him and you've followed him even through the most difficult times is that you would actually be blessed. That suffering, even though this isn't intuitive to us, even though we don't feel this way, even though this isn't something that's right at the surface level, but ultimately it leads to blessing in our lives. And see, when our goal in suffering is God, then what we get every time is God. But when our goal is anything other than God in that situation, it can lead to a lot of frustration. Now, here's where James goes. I absolutely love this and see the wisdom in God here. Because he goes from talking about trials. He goes, hey, I know you're going to go through tough times. I know this is a tough time. But listen, count it as joy because during this tough time, here's some stuff that God's doing in you. He's making you more like him. He's giving you more wisdom. He's helping you to trust in his resources and not your resources. And even though it doesn't feel this way, God is blessing you so that one day you will receive eternal life. And he goes, but by the way, in the middle of this difficult time, you will face temptation. And here's the big principle. We are responsible for our actions in our time of temptation. What you do when you're tempted has everything to do with what you believe and how you trust and what you view God to be. Because he goes on right from this to say this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James goes, I want you to catch this. God is perfectly sinless. He knows no sin. He is not sin. He's not in the sin business. But you and I are utterly sinful. And what happens is, in your life, in my life, is we desire things that will kill us. Now, this is why this is so important. James is saying, when you go through difficult times, if your goal is God, what you'll get is God. If you would allow your faith to grow, if you would continue to believe in him, if you would hold on that he loves you and that he's at work at you, that this is actually for your good, that you would become more like him, that you would grow in your wisdom, that you would trust more in his resources, and that one day you would receive eternal life. He goes, but there's a problem. Because when God tries to bless you, the enemy tries to rob you. He says, in the middle of that struggle, in the middle of that growth, in the middle of that time, you will be tempted to run away from God and put your confidence in anything other than him. He says, don't miss that. In the middle of your trial, you will face temptation, and your temptation will be to put your trust or your confidence in people, places, and things. And he goes, I want you to see that this is deception, that you're being deceived, that God does not tempt you. God never lays temptation before you. He's not in that business. That usually what happens is that you and I have an appetite or desire that which will kill us. And it's so subtle, right? You go, man, life is really hard right now, so what I really desire is some comfort. And so rather than trusting in God, we trust in pills. We trust in alcohol. I had a conversation with a guy last week who 
is celebrating one year of sobriety. And he, he's pumped up about it. His family's pumped up about it. He gives God the glory for the whole thing. He says, if Jesus hadn't done it, I couldn't have done it by myself. So I asked him the question. I said, is it still a struggle for you? Like, after years, it's still a struggle. And he said, you know what's really interesting? I think about alcohol all the time. It's still a struggle every day. Here's what's really interesting. When I get stressed out, there's almost a voice I hear in my head that says, you need to take a drink. He says he fights this inner voice that almost tells him, like, you know what would make this situation better? A drink. And he goes, I'm just smart enough now to know that voice isn't telling me the truth. Because I've never taken a drink and things got better. See, what happens in your life, my life, is we begin to desire things and go, hey, well, maybe I just need to relax a 